0: So I'm going to talk just for a few minutes as a kind of a little bit of introductory topic framing here. And then Amma will lead us in a short meditation, and then we'll have a discussion between the two of us, and then we'll have a short break, and then we'll come back and have a longer question and discussion session than we did last time. Welcome. As you know, the topic of our series here is called Navigating Issues That Arise in the Meditative Path, whatever your meditative path might be. We don't know, but we'll be speaking from the Buddhist perspective because that's the tradition we know best and the one in which we practice and have been practicing for a long time. And one of the main themes of this series is that issues come up in meditation practice and that that's natural, that's normal, and that's good. It's not that they're an obstacle. It's like imagining you know how when you first try to teach someone how to do, if you ever had, maybe when you first learned of mindfulness meditation practice where you sit quietly and using your breath as a kind of anchor to learn to observe your thoughts and feelings. Some people are surprised at that because they think meditation is about turning the mind off. Whereas in the Buddhist practice, that, that notion of turning the mind off is a- almost seen as silly and almost seen as impossible the very higher stages of concentration that the Buddha claimed he achieved that were basically mindless for the most part, Buddhists are working with mindfulness, which means whatever comes up in the practice is actually something that you work with. That's why they call it mindfulness. So rather than trying to get rid of the obstacles that might appear in the mind as if the mind is an open sky and your thoughts and feelings are clouds or mountains in the landscape, and you want to push away the clouds and flatten out the mountains and just have sky. Well, we may have states like that, and they may be beneficial, but what's also deeply needed is for us to become aware of feelings, thoughts, the patterns behind them, and gradually delving into a sense of their source, their origin, and working with them in our experience, And unless we know what they are, and we have the courage and skill to face up to some of the mental and deeper subtle patterns of mind, shallow and deep that we have, we're not likely to achieve the kinds of fruits that the Buddhist tradition says are possible for meditation. So likewise, in the meditative practice, not only when you're sitting, but also in one's life as a meditator, stuff comes up, just like it does for any of us. But in particular for someone who meditates a lot, you start to open domains within the mind and within the body that allow stuff that hadn't come up before to come up. Some people in long retreats have really serious emotional and physical things that come up. Sometimes just from meditating you might feel for a while, or you're more peaceful, or you're more calm, or you're more kind. But then sometimes you might get into a state meditating regularly, where for a few weeks you're really agitated, or you're really sad. Or different kinds of feeling tones and experiences arise that are not happy, easy, peaceful. And some people think that's somehow contrary to the meditative path, and so I must not be a good meditator. The theme of our presentations here is that it's really quite the contrary. With good meditation, effective meditation actually opens you up to all the S-H-I-T that's (laughs) deep down inside. We will make, in our conversation this evening, some distinctions between kinds of things that come up that might be manageable and kinds of things that come up that can be really, really difficult. I myself have not had first-hand experience yet. It's either you know, pretty good karma this life, or my meditation's not that deep, or I'm kind of a repressive type of person, or or it's just around the corner, who knows? The experiences with, with deep traumas that have really stirred me and shaken me, that I think are related to my meditation practice. I've had stuff that just comes out of everyday life that it's very easy to explain. And anyway, one of the things we're going to be talking about today that is trauma in particular. Trauma as things that arise, and trauma can come from obviously a variety of sources, can come from great loss, loss in relationship, loss in loved ones who've died, loss in wealth, right, can come from various kinds of abuse, emotional and physical, can come from just great change and shock in life, can come from childhood stuff that's finally surfacing, stuff that we put at a distance. Might from a Buddhist explanation arise for past life stuff. Who knows? There are various kinds of causes that one could identify. Amma, in particular, will talk about her vast experience in studying and working with traumas. My experience is much more limited, and she'll talk about different kinds. And one of the things we'll talk about, and I want to lay out a couple of points here is that some traumatic things that come up are probably best not dealt with directly in meditation in the way that Buddhists sometimes say you should work with things in meditation. If I'm sitting in meditation, I'm feeling you know angry about my brother or something. You know, just because, oh, he said something about his political views again. How annoying. And I'm noticing it in meditation, the feeling tone that comes with it. Normally meditation, they'd say, well, so what's going on? What, what, what is this? What's the nature of my anger? This thought of brother, where does it come from? Why am I so identified with it and my position? That kind of thing is very mild. That's not dramatic. Some stuff that, and therefore your urge to, to work with those negative and difficult feelings, and to work through them, such that they no longer hold you as tightly. And the pattern that holds you in that kind of thinking and feeling weakens in your life. But there are other kinds of deep traumas, emotional and physical, and the two are never entirely separate emotional and physical. Deep physical trauma creates emotional pain, and deep emotional trauma has physical manifestations. Some of them are more than one ought to be attending to directly meditation. In fact, uh, as Amma has reported to me, and I've read elsewhere, and I think it makes good sense, sometimes one maybe even needs to stop meditating for a while. I, I did have one experience myself when I was dealing, actually after my divorce, with a lot of difficult feelings about four or five years ago. And I remember they were coming up. Maybe that's an example of trauma in meditation. And I I wasn't able to use my meditative skills effectively. And I kind of knew within myself that what I needed to do was something else, not meditation. And I taught myself how to do a little bit of grief work, how to come in touch with pain from childhood, from other places. It allowed me to process the pain of loss I was feeling, some of the anger I was feeling, at divorce. And that work did not take place in meditation for me. It took place not in seated seated meditation of the various kinds that I do. So one of the things that we'll be talking about is that there are certain kinds of trauma that perhaps we ought not directly approach in meditation, and maybe ought not directly approach cognitively at all. We may need indirect, subtle, and gentler ways of getting to them that entail modalities that are not part of the traditional Buddhist lineages, various kinds of therapeutic modalities of mind and body that have emerged in the modern West that are really quite helpful at working with traumatic experiences from a variety of angles. That's a general framework. A couple of other additional points I want to add. One is that this class that we're teaching, and particularly this evening, the concept of trauma, which is one of the more severe issues that arises in one's practice or along side one's practice. This issue that we're talking about, about working with things as you meditate, either during or alongside, assumes, it's directed at people that we assume have meditative experience, and that we assume have the experience in particular, let's say, of being able to distance yourself from some of your thoughts and feelings and not identify with them so tightly. Now if you all are not, don't consider yourself in that category, then that's okay, I'm not saying you have to leave or you won't get anything from this class. But what we're suggesting is that each of us has, in order for what we're saying to really be effective in one's life, one needs to develop the ability to say, as I just did, to be able to see strong feelings, strong thoughts, emotions, impulses, as they arise within one's experience, and to be able to see them somewhat objectively, as if you're looking from of the side, and to not identify with them and to cling to them too tightly. It doesn't mean they don't affect you but they're not entirely consuming you. And that's something that meditative practice brings. It's one of the first great gifts that many people get from meditative practice. Uh, You can get it from other places as well. So the things that we're talking about assume that each of us has within us that that kind of resource, the ability on occasion to step back, to breathe, and to say, oh, look what's going on here. Okay. So just to remind you, that that doesn't mean that we expect that you have it, but the kind of ideas that we're talking about are aimed at a certain context of human work in which that skill is assumed. Without that skill, the kinds of other skills that we're talking about won't be that effective. They won't have a good place to hold unless you have a kind of mindfulness practice that allows you to stand back a little bit. Second, one of the things that we'll talk about a bit today, in addition to specific traumas and how to ways to work with some of them and some modalities for working with them, is that it's important in addition to having that space to be able to step away from some of your thoughts and feelings and strong experiences, to have a place within you that some might call big mind, that some might call a kind of resource of peace, that some might call a a sense of love toward yourself, loving kindness, a sense of goodness in yourself, that we feel as well that that's a really important resource to have when dealing with difficult things. Because sometimes difficult things in life can kind of overtake us, can kind of overwhelm us. In addition to being able to have a little bit of a distance in terms of relating to them, it can be helpful at times as well to sort of withdraw from our absorption in a situation and to be able to sit in the feeling of our own goodness, what some traditions might call our own Buddha nature. In some traditions, a devotional practice will give you a deep sense of love or of being loved. Some sense that of your own goodness, or if not goodness, just your own open, free state of mind, as the Zen tradition calls it, big mind, beyond all this stuff. But having that also as a resource within you, in your experience, as a tool to work with, is a really important foundation. Two last points, and they'll be brief. One I think that we'll talk about is that Trauma and Amma reminded me of this in a conversation we had the other day. Um, is helpfully understood not just as you know a difficult situation, but as a difficult situation that one gets caught up in mentally and or physically, and those two usually come together to some degree. That one can't really get out of. That, that, that's one of the one of the things that identifies it: the, the feeling of being stuck, right? And so we'll want to be talking about that honestly. You know, places where the, where that happens and how it happens, right? And we, we can get stuck, and sometimes it's really important when we get stuck if it's too painful to pull ourselves away from that stuckness, to have a little breathing room to work with it, rather than to dive right in and a kind of macho, perhaps masculine Buddhist approach to let's solve problems just mindfulness, mindfulness. Look at it, an attack it. It'll eventually dissolve with the, you know the missile-like power. Of, it might not dissolve. It might shoot missiles back at you. You know, So we sometimes we have to step back and find a place of, of goodness within ourselves. Maybe this is the last point. And that is, it's really important to think of our practice as not something, as I said, not just something that pulls away from negativity, but that actually engages it one-on-one in order to open up and to grow and to learn and to transform. But also to see our practice as not something that's merely isolated, that we do all on our own on our cushion. Oh, that was my last point, yes. Um, So there are two kinds of disengagement that can be common perception in practitioners, both in Asian traditions and in the West. One, that you're disengaging from your pain, trying to find peace out there somewhere and not actually working with it. Another, that you're disengaged because even if you're working with your stuff, you might feel, I'm working with it on my own. This is a solo practice. This is about me, my mind, my stuff, my cushion. I think that's a hard, in the sense of tough and tight, um, and unfortunate attitude that many people have, a kind of macho individualism. Maybe it's particularly an American Western thing. I'm not sure, but I know many traditional Asianists have it too. But in the traditional monastic setting, where the Buddhist meditations we're talking about grew over centuries, the monastic community does have people who study and meditate alone. But it's also a community of people that help each other. And when it works well, and it doesn't always because they're human beings and they get dysfunctional, when it works well, and Alma can talk about some particularities from her experience, um, people support each other in a variety of remarkable ways. Friendship, listening, talking, teaching, touching. Yeah? There's all kinds of ways in which a community of people People brings great support to us. I think the, the, the last thing to say is that our meditation practice shouldn't be seen as or our, our spiritual practice. In mean, the Buddhist tradition, meditation is one part of three dimensions of the path, usually, right? The foundation of ethics or morality, and then contemplative practice, and then developing the insight. You know, as a kind of a tripod. Right? But community is central to all of that, and as the Buddhists sometimes call it, there's a notion of spiritual friendship or your Kalyanamita, someone who's a really good friend who you trust to help you with things in your spiritual work, uh, you could have more than one. <laughs> you know, a good, wise friend. And it's really important to recognize that as also something that can help us deal with with difficulties in life. And so then the last overarching theme here that I wanted to mention is that what we're bringing to you here that is our sense of a strong of importance of feeling strongly that the meditative path is integrating body and mind, it's not just mind separate, it's integrating your problems and difficulties with the other aspects of your life, it's integrating friendship into the spiritual path, and it's bringing community, friendship, difficulties, body and mind. It's an integrative practice and it's all-encompassing, and there are many, many skillful ways to approach this practice, and some simplistic methods that we talked about last class that might be seen as a kind of magic wand, where if I just sit, all my problems will go away, are perhaps more harmful than helpful. So we're trying to urge here a broader, integrative, interactive perspective on meditative practice today with a focus on working with traumas. So those are my introductory comments today. Would you kindly lead us in a meditation?
1: Yes, I'd like to ask everybody to stand up. and Let your feet come in contact with the floor, your toes spread out. And just begin to take a few moments to let the body come into alignment. And so we want the knees to be slightly bent. And the sacrum, we want the sacrum, the, the sitting bones to be tucked slightly under and forward of the top of the pelvis. So if we had a nice big bushy tail like a fox, we tuck between our legs. And that does the sacrum the right thing. And then the tummy is soft and open. The spine elongates. The shoulders just roll slightly back and down. The hands are resting, slightly curled the sides, the neck elongates, and you can notice that as the neck elongates, the chin moves in just a fraction, and the top of the head reaches the highest point, point. and so we can just begin to let our body earth and ground, we can feel connection with the earth beneath us. And we can just uh, make an intention to let the muscles relax. So we want the big muscles in our legs to relax. So our legs become like hollow logs. Structurally, they're standing us up, but there's very little extra effort. So the logs become empty. Legs become empty. And the muscles in the back relax, and the torso they relax, and the muscles around the shoulders relax, and the muscles in the jaw and the face relax, and the muscles behind the eyes relax, and just begin to get a sense of what the body feels like when we have a moment of balance, alignment, and relaxation. Our body is a refuge, it's a foundation of mindfulness, it's a temple, it's the place where our practice unfolds. We can experience our breath, we can experience our feelings, we can experience our thoughts and our emotions as physical correlates in our body. Being embodied is to allow attention to suffuse the whole body. Learning how to relax, learning how to ground ourselves, and learning how to energize, to bring breath. And life force into the body. So if we imagine there is an energetic anchor going from the bottom of our feet into the earth beneath us, let it go hundreds of feet, thousands of feet, miles, thousands of miles beneath us. So energetically, we are connected into the earth and can use the energy of the earth. All pervasive awareness pervades everything, and so when we do this imaginatively, we are also connecting with awareness that's already present in the earth. There's an imagination component, and there's a connecting with awareness that's all pervasive. The two of them are together. We can allow all pervasive awareness and breath and the life force that pervades everything to come through these energetic anchors. So it's not just our own breath, but it's allowing the breathing of the earth to come through our feet with awareness and energize our feet and our legs. feel the sensations, the tensions, the pulsing, the tinglings, the aliveness that happens when we allow this all-pervasive awareness, breath, and chi, life force energy, to move through our body into our legs, to the of the pelvic floor, the lower abdomen. Middle abdomen, the upper abdomen, torso, into the shoulders. Feeling this energy in our fingers, in our hands, in our wrists, in our forearms, and just noticing the effect that it has on the body, a wave life force moving through the body, the upper arm, again the shoulders, the neck and the throat, the jaw, the face, eyes behind the eyes, the back of the head, and now the whole body, so we can relax and we can energize and feel what it feels like to bring this quality of life force, awareness and breath. Into the whole body. And notice that it brings, that is requiring just the intention to do this. Not a particular special place or circumstance, just the intention to connect and direct one's own attention in this way. So having a body. This is our temple, this is our place of practice, this is our meditation shrine. And learning how to be embodied requires understanding balance and alignment and relaxation and being able to energize. We can allow the pleasure of breathing to wash through us, to nourish, to renew to enliven, to invigorate, to relax. So with the same degree of interest and care and attention, the next meditation exercise is to change posture and to come back into a sitting posture.
0: start with a brief comment and then a question for you? Yeah. Drawing on the word embodiment you just used, it strikes me that much of the work that we're talking about doing, navigating with issues in the path, and perhaps particularly trauma, is about embodiment. It's about learning to see what the body is telling us. Learning to pay more attention to it in a variety of ways, as I spoke before. I think many, well, I can't speak about Westerners, but many contemporary Americans have a lot of trouble doing that. It seems odd to them. There's a kind of block and a fear and a disjointing in terms of coming to know their own bodies. And I think that's a real difficulty that we're encouraging people to help to try to overcome. What do you see as some of the cultural sources there? I think it might be helpful just to talk a little bit about where some of us are mentally and why for some, many of us it seems so difficult to become conscious and aware of what's going on in our bodies.
1: I think from a cultural perspective, we have come out of a time where... Um, Science and the enterprises of the mind were is the religion of the day. And things that were able to be conceptualized were given a lot of privilege, and things that were considered of the body were considered much less. And so we have come out of that, and I think we're in a, in a time of change where we're understanding that the sense of health and wholeness and well-being for a person requires that they have intelligence in different areas, not just in an intellectual and a conceptual one, but in a body, in a somatic one, and in a relational one and in a global one. Okay? okay. But we've come out of a you know the, the era of the you know the enlightenment is the way it used to be understood, which was an intellectual enlightenment. It wasn't a, a, a realization enlightenment that included these other spheres. And so one of the cultural biases is that we have is that there's very little um, cultural support for, it's shifting, but there's, you know, we've come out of a time where the, the privilege was things that we could conceptualize and articulate and, and understand in an intellectual level. So we had no real, uh, frameworks for recognizing that there was a somatic component to all of the things that we were thinking and there was a value in understanding that. Right. And part of that is a shift from a kind of a male-oriented approach to something that's uh, more, from maybe maybe the words might be better used solar to lunar, you know. Mm-hmm. And where the body is, is considered a much more reliable indicator of some of the things that are going on. Mm-hmm. But there's another thing that happens, which is, is that um, when people have a lot of trauma, it's incredibly difficult to bring your attention into your body because it's not a comfortable place to be. Yeah. But I want to backtrack a bit because when I was hearing the way you were describing trauma, it's, my understanding is different in a couple areas. Trauma is not just any experience which is really difficult. Trauma is a particular kind of experience which is related to feeling or perceiving that there's something that's life-threatening that you're in the middle of that you can't get out of. So it's not like just being really sad or having a, a, a difficult experience with somebody or uh, feeling a lot of loss. But when that, when those experiences take one into, the, into a place where one is perceiving that it's life-threatening, and also perceiving that you can't get out of it. Mm. That's the mechanism by which trauma can actually get set into the system. Mm. And it's also really helpful to understand that it has a deep physiological component to it. It's not just a mental um, way of understanding something. And things that one wouldn't necessarily imagine could be completely traumatic. So, for example, um, you know, if you're in the hospital and uh, you're you're anxious because you're having some kind of a medical procedure, and they strap you down while you're being anesthetized, you know, this is a classic situation which actually can be incredibly traumatic because your system is perceiving it as if it's life-threatening, even though intellectually you might have another framework that the doctors are there for your own good. And that's particularly true for kids who don't have a framework that understands, you know, what's happening. So it can happen in a in a dental chair or it can happen in, in a hospital or in an operating room. And so it's not necessarily terrible, violent things that we think of, you know. But what happens is, is that the system then begins to get a... A feeling that there's something that's life threatening and one can't get out of, and then there's a kind of a locking of either a freeze, a, f- a fight, or a flight response mechanism that the body is stuck in and it can't release. So, the normal kind of mechanisms that happen for us when we have trauma or an animal, like when a, when a, a, a tiger chases a, a gazelle or something like that if it doesn't actually get killed, you will notice that the the gazelle will shake and and quiver and then run away, okay?
0: Or sometimes remain still.
1: So the stillness is to deal with the initial uh, approach, but then after the tiger is gone, then there's a shaking in the body and then the, the gazelle will run away. And the shaking is a really important release mechanism that the body has to release something that was traumatic. So one of the reasons why it's really important to understand this is is that, you know, if we find ourselves going through stuff where our body is shaking, sometimes in meditation we think that we're not supposed to shake or we feel ashamed of that. So we try and clamp that down or we try and make sure that we're not moving or we try and lock into the painful feelings that we're having. And those kinds of things are not helpful when we're having a natural... uh, emergence of a traumatic response and it's releasing from our system.
0: I mean, another term for that is discharge.
1: That's right. Right. That's right. Which
0: can happen in light and in heavy ways. There's a lot of what you just said that we're going to open up as we go on here. I really appreciate your elucidating that trauma is not just a difficult situation or not just an emotional state, but that it tends to derive, or perhaps in your view it derives entirely from a perception of feeling life-threatened. And I think that feeling of being threatened can happen in a variety of ways. It might be helpful to clarify. It's not only the soldiers post-traumatic stress because they had the trauma of feeling like someone was going to shoot them, someone was going to kill them at every corner, having nightmares of things exploding around them, watching other people die. That kind of trauma is clearly coming from one place, would be a real sense of fear of loss of bodily life at any moment. But I think there are the kinds of trauma that have a slightly different sense of Mm life-threatening, right? Losing someone really, really close to you with whom you identify your sense of self and life. You might feel as if I can't go on living anymore without them. It's a different kind of threatening feeling. But it also is, I think, fits into the category of feeling life-threatening, doesn't Mm
1: -hmm. it? That's right.
0: Not just feeling like your body's going to be crushed,
1: but but that your heart,
0: (laughs) your mind, your being...
1: And I think part of this also comes back to, for many of us, what happened in our early childhood conditioning was is that there were times where our parents weren't able to give us the primary caretaking that we needed. Yeah. And so for an infant or a child that's very dependent, you know, if one has needs and they're not being met, the, the person, the child can be experiencing that as life-threatening. Absolutely. Even if... The reality is, is, is that you know, mom or dad went away for a half an hour or for an hour, and they had no intention of abandoning you. But the child can actually experience that as a totally life-threatening, you know, a sense of uh, of the risk of annihilation. And if that happens repeatedly, then that imprint is there. And so then, as one gets older, and then in relationship, if a person is not able to meet needs when they are arising, it can trigger this earlier childhood experience that felt like an annihilation experience. And there can be a full-blown trauma reaction, even if you're now an adult. And what's happening is, is, you know, the person wasn't able to make you a cup of coffee in the morning, you know. So that the actual trigger can be really insignificant, but it's touching into something that happened in the past that wasn't at all insignificant and hasn't released. Okay? So what is needed is, okay, first of all, I want to backtrack a bit and say that, you know, one of the values of meditation is, is that as, as we begin to see what's there, is the stuff that was repressed then begins to open up. And that's a value in the sense that some of the reasons why we live with fear or we live with um, a sense of discontent or we live with a sense of emptiness or lack is because of stuff that we don't actually even know what's driving us. Okay, And so with the meditation practice of the, the mindfulness practices and the bare awareness practices, there are like peelings of the onion we're coming back closer and closer and closer into, well, what is actually here? And through getting to what is here, we're actually revealing it, the layers of conditioning that has built up the sense of who I am. And some of those layers have a lot of lovely things in them, and some of them have a lot of unlovely things in them. And so the natural process of meditation is is a de-repressive mechanism. And some of the things which illuminate are traumatic memories. Okay? So we might know that if somebody doesn't bring me a cup of coffee when I ask them to, it might trigger a massive kind of emotional meltdown. But we might not have any association about what that's all about. And then the meditation can open up, you know, an experience of maybe being an infant or a young child where you were totally dependent on your parents or your primary caregivers, where you were left in a situation where your needs weren't being met, and it felt catastrophic. Yeah. So what is really helpful when those kind of memories come up is rather than to engage in the story, as you were saying, this is one of the primary things that we're dealing with, is to bring our attention to the body and to let our attention oscillate between the unpleasant sensations in the body and the pleasant sensations that are in the body. So we don't want to lock on to what's unpleasant and kind of drill into it and think that if we just lock onto it like a rockwaller or like an eel, you know, that somehow that by doing that, that is going to be the way it's going to release. What's needed is a sense of, of subtlety and fluidity, of touching it and touching what's nourishing, touching it and touching what's nourishing touching it and touching what's nourishing. Because one of the primary things that happens with trauma is that one goes right back into a fight, flight, or freeze response, and one has this deep feeling of not being safe. So we might be here in the middle of a room with kind people, and nothing is particularly difficult is happening. But our internal experience is that it feels life-threatening yeah So in order to work with it, one has got to be able to come back to what actually feels safe.
0: That's the related to the kind of space, the goodness space that I was talking about right. before, safety is another very well right. helpful way of putting it.
1: That's right. So yeah. for me, when people are talking about trauma, there's a couple of really basic things that they need. And one of the images that I have is a person needs to be harnessed to their own goodness, mm-hmm. like a safety harness where they really feel, you know, the sense of their own worth, their sense of their own value, their sense of their own self-respect, okay? And when you're dealing with this stuff, it's like what you need is you need to have a safety harness, you need to have stop, and you need to have reverse. Because when the stuff that's emerging ends up flooding your system so that there's no capacity to actually navigate it with mindfulness because it's overwhelming, then you're in over your head, and you need to know that. And to know that means that you rely on the safety harness, you recognize this is more than you can manage, and you stop what you're doing, and you pull yourself out of that circumstance and bring your attention to something altogether different. So whether you go and you smell flowers, or you read a book, or you cuddle some animals, or get some hugs for some friends, or bake some cookies, or make some coffee, or go shopping, the whatever it is that you're doing isn't as important as you're pulling yourself out of a of a looping and you're allowing something opening to happen with that. Yeah. The safety harness of being tethered to one's own goodness, I can't under um, rate. Yeah. And one of the ways that we can have access to that is through generosity and through a meta practice. You know, where we really genuinely see that our goodness is something tangible that we can connect to every day.
0: Well, that, as you know, is very useful just in ordinary life, even if you're not dealing with trauma, right? Just our tendency to have low self-esteem, to get a bit depressed and caught up on our flaws and our negativities. Very important to be able to return to recognizing the basic goodness, particularly in the case of working with trauma.
1: It's huge and it's one of the primary things that the Buddha recommended as a you know, in the foundation of developing the path. And not with people who are dealing with trauma, but just as a basic requisite. Yeah. yeah. It's really important. And I think also another thing that's really important is good friends and community. Because, you know, what happens in a situation like this is is, is that it's so overwhelming that one needs to have um, frames of reference that is like a reality check, of like, we're we're actually okay, we're talking to each other, and right now there isn't anybody shooting us, you know? It's actually okay, you know? But one of the things which is an interesting um, point of both joy as well as sadness is is that, you know, the, the Vipassana meditation scene in the United States It's focused around meditation.
0: Do you guys know that? Vipassana, insight meditation, one of the largest kind of groupings of Buddhist practitioners around the country? Mm -hmm. Vipassana? Yeah.
1: So in a a contemplative monastery, in a monastery that I was living in, you know, the monastery is not built around meditation. There are many, many different ways that people are engaged in the monastery. Through service, through generosity, through support, through, gen- through devotional practices, through celebration, through friendship. There are many, many ways that the monastery is set up. And so when a person is going through something that's particularly intense, and it's not at all useful for them to spend time in solitary, silent meditation practice, they don't need to feel bereft at their spiritual practice is hanging out to dry because there's 9, 10, 12, 15 other ways that they can engage which are totally valid ways of engaging with one's practice. And in, in the Vipassana scene, all you have is really meditation. And if you can't meditate, it's like you're done in, you know. So one of the things about a, a, a contemplative community, a monastic community as an oasis for people to gather is is that it, it extends the framework of what meditation is, which then ends up including times when we are going through these rough passages where the classical forms of meditation are counterproductive. They're not actually what we need to do at all. And yet you are held within a spiritual community that is totally validating what you're doing and the fact that you're still practicing. And for any of us who really take practice to the heart where it becomes like a lifeline, you know, there are times when you can't practice, it feels totally devastating. Now, I remember when I was uh, first came to the monastery, I had a reaction to a flu injection uh, and I got chronic fatigue and I couldn't do regular meditation for a long time. And I remember I could still bow and I could still chant. And so bowing and chanting was no longer kind of like this nice thing that you did before practice and after practice. It was the sum total of my practice. It was the only thing that I could do. And I began to see that in bowing and chanting, you can take everything and let that be the full total practice, you know? So we have a very narrow uh, range of what we consider meditation practice to be. And there are times when it is not at all supportive to ourselves or to the other people that we know. Okay? So I just want to come back to this whole idea about noticing when you are able to work with something and when you're not, what to do. Because it's really important, you know? When you're feeling flooded, which means that your system is totally inundated with something that is outside of your capacity to navigate and you don't feel like you have the resources, okay, then you need to pull yourself out of whatever it is that's triggering that and find other supports for it. Now, I want to tell you a recent experience that I had, which might sound hilarious, but it certainly wasn't at all hilarious when I was in the middle of it. I, had, um, I was exposed to mold. My system, I got really sick, and I was allergic to a gazillion different things and all kinds of strange stuff like fabric softener and perfumes and soaps and carpets and cigarette smoke and gas fumes. I mean, just, I couldn't walk, you know, like one of those kind of things. So I was traveling around, and I was staying over at a friend's house, and the friend had had cleaned the house a week before I'd come, so there was no trace of anything in the house before. She really took a lot of care. But she didn't know, because how would you know, that she needed to rewash the sheets with something that didn't have fabric softener in them. Okay? So I got in the bed, and I went into a full-blown trauma response. I froze. And my system was experiencing the fabric softener in the sheets as somebody would have experienced walking through a field with open fire. I was in an absolute state of terror and panic, okay? So I had to talk myself down intellectually by saying, this is fabric softener. You are not in a field with open machine gun fire, okay? I had to I get up because I was completely frozen, get the sheets off of the bed, So I pulled them off of the bed and I put them in a plastic bag and I stuck them in a place that wasn't going to be. And I went back to sleep and I was like absolutely freaked out. So I know points on my body to hold which calm my my nervous system. So I spent the whole night holding these points, calming myself, telling myself, you are safe now, you are safe now, you are safe now. And in the morning time I got up and I was still trembling and agitated and shaky. And I had to get somewhere, so I was on a bike, and I rode my bike. And to get on the bike and to ride away from the big monster that was going to get me, I can't tell you how restorative it was to use my own leg muscles as part of getting away from the thing that was so difficult for me. Okay. So when we use our own body responses to run, it's like we're coming back to that primal part of our brain where we think we've just been attacked by a tiger. Now, intellectually, I hadn't been attacked by a tiger. I knew that. But my body didn't. The primitive part of my brain was reacting as if it had. So if I was responding to my primitive part of the brain doing it what it wanted to do, to run away from the big, bad monster, then everything felt better. So I rode for half an hour at full speed, and by the time I got, I don't know, downtown, it was like, oh my goodness, you know, this agitation had completely discharged from my nervous system, all right? So this was a somatic response based on a sensitivity, like an allergic reaction to a chemical, but my brain was as if, you know, I was under machine gun fire, you know?
0: But that ability to, the experience of pushing yourself away by pedal, by pedal, pedal, by pedal, you know, it it restores in a very deep physical sense your, your sense of empowerment, right? I can be safe. I can find safety. I do have some element of control here. And that seems a really important element of goodness that's brought into the picture.
1: That's right. And I think David, you know, one of the things that happens is that when we're in a freeze response, yeah. flight is really healthy. It's, and so is fight. Okay? So the other they thing that both involve ha- vigorous right. activity. Right. Right, right. So so one of the other things that happens is, is that if we've been in a freeze response and we come out of it, we can become absolutely ballistically angry. Okay? Absolutely furious. And as Buddhists, we want to slam that, shut it off. Well, oh, anger's bad. <laughs> and say, you know, I'm a bad person for feeling this. But one has to understand the context. As long as you are clear that it's not okay to hurt somebody with it, when one is engaged in a trauma release, one has got to allow the mind to do what it wants with it. So imagining strangling somebody, imagining spitting at them or kicking them or imagining, you know, whatever one needs to imagine because the mind is trying to move into a healthy discharge through what it knows, which is very primitive mechanisms. But these things, there has got to be the framework of understanding that while one thinks that way, one does not act that way. Yeah. And so there has got to be, in addition to being tethered to one's own goodness, a real clear sense of what's appropriate behavior. Because if you don't have that, then you can't navigate this kind of internal mind
0: state. But as you're saying, though, then an affirmation that the, what appears as a negative and destructive emotion that's arising, in and of itself, is just an energy. There's nothing inappropriate to that. It needs to be released.
1: Exactly. And probably
0: physically. That's right. But just not at a target so you don't harm anyone. It, that's right. It reminds me, one of my, the high points of my fathering experience was when I bought my son ten little clay flower pots. And the reason I bought him was because his younger sister had come into the world and she was no longer crawling. She was standing and she was getting in his way, both by stealing his parents' love and stealing his food and stealing his toys and just like ruining his life. And one day he, he was struggling with her in the stairs and he wanted... I said, what are you doing? He said, I want to push her down the stairs. And I said, why do you want to push her down the stairs? And he said, I want to kill her. He was four. And he meant that because for him, that means get her out of the picture. Right. Well... I decided that he needed to do something with that energy and he was like trying to break things of hers and this and, that. and I said, no, no, no. I went out to a flower shop and I found on sale little clay pots and we went in the back of my house and I showed him how you can throw them on the concrete and they'll break. And his eyes got big. And I said, would you like one? And he looked over his shoulder, what will mommy say? You know, and I said, mommy's not here, it's okay. And she, she thinks this is a good thing anyway. He picked it up and, you know, tentatively kind of, Dropped one, it didn't break. And I said, no, throw it, you know. ah, ah, ah." I said, would you like another one? (laughs) And he went through ten clay pots and broke them, you know. It was a really important message to him and a really important lesson for me as well, right? That, That energy is something that we need to work with, right? That's right. Right? right. Because he was, I don't think he was experiencing trauma, but he was deeply upset about someone who had taken over his world. Right. Right?
1: Yeah, so there are contexts where we actually need to engage with the negative mind states that in Buddhism really has a bad rap. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. And to know that that's actually part of our health. And to understand when the context is appropriate and Mm. then when it is indulging it or actually increasing the mind state. Mm hmm. And so, you
0: know, understanding these concepts of brilliant fathering, you know, it, it was
1: my high point. Yeah, just
0: convinced. fabulous, yeah, yeah. So can I respond to you in a Please, couple of yeah, ways? Yeah. I, I want to ask a couple of questions, really. It sounds from something you were saying earlier as if you might have read, if you haven't, you maybe wrote <laughs> Alice Miller's book, The Drama of the Gifted Child. Do you know it? I've heard of it, but
1: I've never read the whole thing. Okay, because you were
0: expressing one of her arguments quite eloquently. Um, because you've learned it or you've got it from other sources. I use it in my freshman seminar every year at Colorado College, and it's a delightful book that talks exactly about what you said, how certain situations relationally in life will often trigger certain traumas which are unconsciously remembered by the body, but not in conscious memory. And so when the person doesn't bring coffee to us, we freak out, because what's happening is we're remembering the feeling of abandonment. Right of childhood, or something along those lines. And early in her book, she talks about the importance of, in a kind of contemplative way, going into one's body and mind through therapy to recover that original experience, so it can then become real, and you can see, oh, I did experience this fear. She says, kind of like you did, that the for a young child to have some kind of unconditional love from a caregiver is an absolute need. She says it's a biological necessity, and that if the child doesn't get it, they will feel, they feel threatened. They feel mm-hmm. as if they're going to die without unconditional care. Mm-hmm. And so, what they do as a defense mechanism against that feeling of being threatened is they shut down their feelings. Mm-hmm. Essentially, the body tells them, "I don't need it." Because the initial feeling is, if I don't get it, I'm going to die. But you can't tolerate that for long as a kid. You don't have other tools to work with it. So the body shuts it down and goes into repression mode. And that turns you into a gradually a number and number human being as you get old. And you're not sensitive to things. And you lose the original source of that fear. In an early edition of her book, she says that can only be recovered through therapy. After reading that book many years ago and talking with other therapists about it, both intellectually and in terms of some experiences of my own, several of them said to me that they thought she was wrong, that there are other ways to access it, that you don't have to have the actual memory of the experience. You simply need to relive the feeling tone. In a later edition of the book, she writes an afterword, which says, actually, I made a mistake in my other book. This can be regained through a variety of methods, including art therapy, including anything, where you get in touch with the whole range of feeling." So you were not aware of that argument of her book, but you know the basic perspective. Okay. So that was actually just a point of questioning. Did you know her book? Now you do, and you all do too. Alice Miller's The Drama of the Gifted Child, a really wonderful book. Then second, I wanted to ask, and maybe this is a turning point, if we could turn and if you could point to us, um, some of the other methods that you mentioned to me earlier that you're familiar with not today for working with certain kinds of trauma when they arise. You mentioned um, you know, fleeing, for example. That's one. But what are some of the other ways in which you feel that some traumas can be worked with, aside from the sort of direct macho, you know, meditative approach, I'm just going to dissolve this with the power of my samadhi, you, you kind of gave me a list of them earlier, and I thought it might be helpful to go over a few of those. Do you well, think this is a good time? Or? Yeah,
1: no, this is fine. I think, you know, first of all, to understand that when, when things are within hand, within range then the way of working with it is to go back and forth between tracking the sensations, to stay with the sensations and watch how they shift and see whether you feel the sensations as something inward, as something pushing outward, as the color, as the shape, and very, very careful uh, attention to the sensations that you're experiencing and how they are changing. Okay, So within our own meditation experience, this is one way of working with it. Then there are different modalities as well as working with it. And so um, within the meditation framework, we can use generosity, we can use uh, devotion, we can use um, service, we can use um, uh, working with this energy in a way where we are not dissociating from it, but it's not actually the focus of what our attention is. Okay. Then, in terms of other modalities, in terms of other ways of working with it, there's many contemporary models that I, f- I think, are really effective. There's uh, EMDR. There's Somatic Experiencing. There's tapping. There's a, a TRE.
0: Which what does that stand for?
1: Trauma Release. Or tension release something, yeah, okay. Where you actually you get to the shaking point, so you actually induce the muscles in the body to shake, and that can release and let go of some of the trauma, um, attention that's already that's held in the body. It's you have to be very careful about how much of the story you bring up and what you do with it, because the story, if it's not attended to in the right way, can just re-traumatize. So there needs to be skillfulness in what you're doing with the content of what the original experience was rather than just saying that it's a good thing to bring it up and to relive it, one needs to be really careful about if one's bringing it up or if it's coming up, that it's much more important to relive it from the sensation perspective than from the actual content perspective of what happened. When the content, when the sensation is is moderated so that one can move through it from a place of safety rather than from a place of just feeling completely freaked out again.
0: What you call content really relates more to mental formations around the event or the experience? No,
1: what I'm saying is is that if a memory comes up, up, then what is really helpful is not to pay so much attention to the memory, memory, but to bring one's attention to the sensations connected to the memory and to oscillate the painful, Mm -hmm. difficult, trapped sensations with things which feel safe, which feel open, which feel expansive, which feel peaceful nourishing okay and then through doing that it will release from your nervous system and the trauma of it it, it can it can go you know it's trauma is a conditioned thing it is not innate yeah. so no matter how profound the trauma was it when the conditions ripen it can release it's not it's not it doesn't scar you permanently it can release
0: you know the work of Peter Levine. Yes. I don't know if any of you know Peter Levine, L-E-V-I-N-E. He's, he lives in Boulder. He's aging now, but he's written several good books. One... I think When the Tiger Wakes and another one...
1: Waking the Tiger. Waking the
0: Tiger and then another When the Body Speaks or something, Mm -hmm. The Voice of the Body, something like that.
1: There's there's a a new one that he's written, which is a composition which is excellent, but the one that I really found tremendously illuminating was Trauma Through the Eyes of a Child.
0: Oh, yeah, that was one of his earlier books.
1: And I found it brilliant Mm -hmm. because he talks about situations that you would never imagine as traumatic, and they were completely traumatic for those kids when they went through them. And he also gives really good first aid about, you know, if this is what you see, this is how you deal with it. And, uh, uh, you know, and talks about, you know, situations of people where they didn't get the support that they needed and what happened to them. And, you know, some of it was really tragic.
0: He gives a brilliant example in one of his books, I can't remember which, of when he himself was in an auto accident and he was hit by a car and flown, he got flew through the air and landed. And when the... EMT people came to fix him, you know. They want I forget what it was, they wanted to strap into a chair or something like that. And he said, Leave me alone. I'm very experienced <laughs> as a therapist dealing with these things. My body needs to shake. Mm. Just let me shake. He says often people aren't allowed to do that. Right. Either they don't feel it's appropriate or the people that are attending them get scared. And he's learned, especially through observing animals,
1: right.
0: that they need to discharge.
1: But you know, one of the things about that particular story of Peter Levine in that book, which I found really um, tender, mm-hmm. was here is somebody who has written a, a, a protocol for trauma release and is a quite renowned, renowned in this field and has been doing it for like 40 years. And he's in the middle of a trauma experience himself. And the thing that made the difference for him was this kind woman yeah. who came and showed up And she was totally attuned to where he was and what he needed and was acting as his ally, which made him be able to self-regulate and know the things that he needed himself. So here's a person who teaches this stuff and has done for 40 years. And it was the presence of another kind person that was able to interact with him and do what was supportive for him that made the huge difference between him being able to self-regulate and remember the vast knowledge that he had, whereas this other person who showed up, which was a, you know, he wanted to fix and sort and strap and do all the rest of that, was completely doing the opposite of what was helpful, you know. And so... um,
0: I think that the story illustrates a lot. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah.
0: You know, and I think it, 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 it goes back to our theme about certain misconceptions many people have about Buddhism and Buddhist practice. You know, you, you're not supposed to get angry, you're supposed to be chill, you're supposed to be kind, you're supposed to be still, whatever, and you're not supposed to shake, you don't release stuff. But what we're presenting here is a, a very different model, That's right? right. That exactly. it's important to release stuff, it's important to cry. Right, You know. right.
1: And so what is helpful, obviously, is to have some sense of one's own capacity or to be in contact with another person who has enough sense of this territory so that you are releasing in a way where it is safe. Because with some kinds of things, it just needs to be held skillfully because the possibility of the memories causing a flood Emotions that one isn't able to navigate is not something that one wants to recreate. Yeah. So uh, skillful people are either meditation teachers who understand how to work with trauma or skilled people in the field of working with trauma directly are the kind of people that you want to find a resource when something like this is coming up. And it's really important to know about these people. And, you know, as a meditation teacher, usually when I was in an area for a while, I would have a list of people that I could ask as resources if somebody was coming through something that was needed extra support. And so that the team was readily... I knew what the team members would be like when it was needed. I didn't wait until the crisis is developed.
0: Should we do a break? I think we need a break.